The orthopedics industry has been around for a century developing devices and implants that help people walk, run, and live healthier lives. But despite being one of MedTech's oldest sectors, it's also one of the fastest adopters of new technologies. Space age materials, surgical robotic systems, sensors that can send data directly to hospitals and physicians. In this series, we'll talk with industry leaders about how these new technologies will change the face of MedTech. Welcome to the Ortho Innovation Talks podcast. Hi everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the very first episode of the Ortho Innovation Talks podcast. As you know, our past podcasts have focused either in the industry like Device Talks Weekly or on specific companies. We're taking a different direction with this podcast. We're going to focus on a specialty within the medical device industry, one of the largest, one of the most innovative, the orthopedics industry. So we're going to focus a series of episodes on a particular company in the space and uh, that'll be really the hook that we hang these episodes on. And I'm so happy to have as our first partner in the Ortho Innovations Talks podcast, Zimmer Biomet. We've been talking with Zimmer Biomet for a long time about this project. We're really excited to be putting it together finally. And uh, it's affording us the opportunity to, to really dive deep on how Zimmer Biomet is impacting the orthopedics industry and helping patients. But in addition, we're also going to look at other companies that are assisting the orthopedics industry. In this case, we're going to talk to Acuity MD, which has built a really impressive product line of uh, services and, and systems that can help folks building markets in the orthopedics industry. So I'll talk a bit with Mike Matavukas. He's the CEO of Acuity MD. Then I'm really, really psyched to bring you the interview that I did with Rachel Ellingson. She's now Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at Zimmer Biomet. And we'll talk about Zimmer Biomet's direction where it's going, about some of the big moves it's made over the past couple of years, including the spin-out of ZimV, and about how Rachel and the leadership at Zimmer Biomet really views the future of orthopedics. So really excited to bring the conversation with Rachel Ellingson. She'll be the primary focus of this episode, but we're also going to intersperse the conversation I had, again, with Mike Matavukas, the CEO of Acuity MD. Uh, we'll talk with Mike first, then we'll talk with Rachel, then we'll bring Mike back and finish up with Rachel. And we'll be bringing you new conversations with different leaders at Zimra Biomet and different orthopedics leaders from smaller companies or supportive companies in the orthopedics industry. We have a, a great uh, line of sponsors that we'll be rolling out for the Ortho Innovations Talks podcast. So uh, really grateful to have you here. And I know you'll enjoy this episode and these conversations. As I said, we're going to open up this episode with a conversation with Mike Monavukas, the CEO of Acuity MD. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be on. We've had uh, the blessing. You've, you've blessed our, our airways before with Acuity MD's message, but there may be one or two people out there who haven't uh, heard your story yet. So could you uh, give us a quick uh, primer on, on what Acuity MD is up to? What do you folks do for medtech companies? Absolutely. And, and Tom, a lot has changed since we last spoke. Oh, uh, boy. Acuity MD is uh, the leading commercial platform for the medtech industry. We work with about 150 different medical device companies, including now five of the top 10 uh, by revenue. And so we started our journey building a platform that serves personalized opportunities to help field sales teams hit their number and grow. 
And our targeting module was built with a suite of differentiated features and innovations like being able to track product usage so that companies can unlock cross-sell and white space opportunities, or our peer network algorithm that can personalize that answer to the question every sales rep gets, which is, well, who else uses this product? Mm -hmm. So we can personalize that for each, each surgeon. And Tom, we talked about this one a bit, our new AI-enabled audio briefs. So helping sales reps <laughs> learn about their territory during windshield time, almost like a personalized podcast channel for every rep. You're killing me, Mike. I love the idea. I love the idea. When we first met Acuity MD, I, I thought those folks could use the podcast. So uh, uh, I'm glad I wasn't wrong, but I wish I was. Uh, <laughs> I wish I leapt on the opportunity because it sounds like a great fit for what Acuity MD up, is up to. What's the uh, What's the interface like for 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 sales reps when they're using Acuity MD? What kind of information are they getting on their on their hopefully future clients? Yeah, absolutely. So we've tried to meet the sales reps where they work. So a mobile app. They have the richness of our data platform uh, behind the scenes. So pulling from 330 million distinct patient journeys in the US, mm -hmm. the reps can access the, the platform through mobile, but we also have an audio-based experience so that when they're on the road, they can learn about their territory, they can learn about their accounts, they can you know learn about individual surgeons that they're, uh, that they're gonna go call on. That's excellent. And we're talking a lot about, about strategic growth within medtech where we're, we're have we're, we're fortunate to be uh, focused on a lot of high growth companies uh, in this industry. How does AcuteMD support strategic growth in initiatives within, well, let's start with larger companies, then we'll talk about how you work with smaller companies later. Absolutely. So one of the things we learned about, we started with the rep and the more we uh, we talked to folks at medical device companies, we realized that our data platform and workflow tools could help drive broader strategic initiatives across the medical device uh, enterprise, uh, whether supporting M&A or even organic product launches. So I'll give a few examples. From an M&A perspective, we can replace a lot of the static reports and data sheets that companies traditionally use to evaluate markets and quantify market size and operationalize post-acquisition. So one of our customers, Cordis, and Cordis X, their innovation accelerator, has adopted Acuity MD to quantify the new markets that they pursue hmm. and address and assess the strategic fit with their current portfolio of products. And so what's interesting about that model compared to the status quo is we can integrate in each company's definition of their ideal customer profile and product usage from their existing portfolio of products to then overlay a new market that they want to expand to and see what the synergies might be by you know going from product A to product B. Wow. So AQDMD is not only becoming useful when a, a, a company has decided to go into a space, but you're a big part of, of the decision whether a space is worth going into in the first place? Absolutely. Let's let's walk through this hypothetical example, Tom. So let's say you're the CEO of an orthopedic trauma company. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking about a product launch or maybe an acquisition into the rotator cuff repair market. Okay. So that's a, that's sort of the current state. You might do some research and you might find that the overall market for this new rotator cuff product is $500 million just to make mm -hmm. it up. Okay. But let's be honest. You don't have all the relationships with all those surgeons. You might be locked out of certain accounts. You know, it's going to be difficult to convert all $500 million of that market over to your new product. Um, and so based on what we can do with Acuity MD is not only show you how big the market is, but we can say, hey, Tom, based on the surgeons who already use your trauma portfolio and the accounts who are already purchasing trauma, 
uh, your trauma bag. Well, mm-hmm. we can identify $20 million of low-hanging fruit where you can cross-sell your rotator cuff product into your existing base of users and customers. And within a few clicks, you could operationalize that strategy out to your sales reps and start tracking and reporting on the outcomes in real time to make sure that, hey, our initiative is, is working or maybe it's not and we need to consider a new segment to explain. We'll hear more from Mike Monavukas a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more about AcuityMD right now, go to AcuityMD's website. It's Acuity, A-C-U-I-T-Y-M-D.com. All right, now let's begin the conversation that I had with Rachel Ellingson, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at Zimmer Biomed. Rachel Ellingson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to hear your story. You have an interesting background into medtech, not your typical engineering route or wanted to be a doctor route, or maybe you did want to be a doctor. I don't know. We can we can find that out. But I uh, really want to understand your role at, as Chief Strategy Officer at Zimmer Biomet. And you've had a lot going on over the last year, and I'm sure you've got some plans coming up in the future that hopefully we can delve into a bit. But first, let's learn about you. How did you find your way into the medical device industry? Uh, great. So I, you know, for me, I will go back probably all the way to college because uh, oh. it's usually an unusual route because people assume I have a big background in finance. And when I actually started out, I was a psychology major. <laughs> and, and I know. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, a curveball. I didn't see that one coming. All right, you got me. Continue. <laughs> there you go. So anyway, I didn't necessarily ever really want a career in psychology. I just found the coursework really interesting. So I love understanding human behavior, why people do what they do. I've just always found that interesting. But from a career perspective, you know, I knew I didn't want to go further into psychology for my career. But to be honest, I I really, I really wasn't at all sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I graduated during a recession, jobs were pretty scarce. So I was one of those people who was just, you know, throwing out lots and lots of resumes and got my first job actually in the compliance department of a brokerage firm. Yikes. So I know, interesting, I, great for lots of reasons. I love my compliance colleagues. For me, it was not exactly where I wanted to be, but I will tell you that the great thing about it was that when you're in compliance, you get to learn a lot about every area of the company. So I met a lot of people while I was at this brokerage firm. And uh, some of the people I met were in what was called the investment banking division inside of the brokerage firm. And didn't know what that meant. I had no background in it, but I thought I would talk to people. They would explain to me what they were doing. And it sounded really interesting to me. And I don't know if people all know what investment bankers are here, but generally, you know, they're financial strategic advisors who work with companies, helping them raise money by accessing the capital markets. And then they execute mergers, acquisitions, divestitures. So probably a longer story than we have time for. I, eventually, I, I was able to convince the head of investment banking to give me a chance in the investment banking division as an oh, wow. analyst, for which I'm very grateful. But I digress for a minute. I originally went up to him and he very politely and firmly was like, you really don't have any of the background that we're interested in, but thank you so much for calling. To which I then said, you know, I'm like, well, what do I need? And he's like, you need finance background. So I actually took my GMATs, enrolled in the MBA program at UConn. I was working at a Hartford at the time to get finance. I came back to him. I'm like, I'm, look, I'm going to have finance. Can I come to your firm and or into your division? And he was like, well, you need computer skills. 
Wow. So I went, I took local computer classes, learned spreadsheet <laughs> skills, came back. And I think, you know, after some relentless pursuits, he just sort of agreed to give me a chance. But that's, that was how I got into investment. That's banking. great, though. That's, that's great that you start to fill the gaps that he put in front of you. What was the role you wanted? Was it a Wall Street analyst or was it an analyst for the investment banking side of the house? Well, yeah. So at the time, I really didn't know what I wanted. So I it was the people I met that really convinced me it was an interesting area. I was a psychology major who was just trying to figure out where I wanted to be, to be honest. I, I really didn't have a, I want to be a Wall Street person. In fact, I, I graduated probably not really even understanding what that was. But, but it worked out great. I mean, I stayed in investment banking for 15 years. That first company was a brokerage firm that no longer exists called Advest. It was acquired probably in the early 2000s. And then from there, I moved to Cowan. I was at Bank of America and did my career as a managing director in their med tech group and truly, truly loved that part of my career. You know, I worked with CEOs and boards, lots of different healthcare companies, mostly in med tech. And you're working with these companies, you know, it's some of the most critical inflection points that a company can have, right? Acquisitions, IPOs, initial public offerings, other financing. So that psychology, human behavior part actually did come into play with a lot of my banking work. You're really working with leaders as they think through strategic options and make decisions around things that would change the trajectory of their future. So loved that. So what was it that convinced you to move out of investment banking and into industry? Yeah. So, and I will say it was pretty surprising when I did make the decision to leave investment banking, you know, but I knew some people talk about that voice in your head. For me, it was that voice saying, Hey, what would it be like to be on the inside, right? Be part of, you do a deal with a company and you're, they're a client, but you're not inside either part of the decision-making beforehand where you're thinking about why you want to do the deal. And you're not necessarily part of the team or you're definitely not part of the team to go build something on it afterwards. So I just knew that I wanted to leave investment banking and do something different. I left and actually I didn't leave for a specific job. I just uh, I left. Wow. I decided it was the right time to go. And I ended up reaching out to a couple of my med tech clients after I left. And much to my happy surprise, everyone I called would be like, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll hire you for project-based work, which was fantastic. So I was a bit of a consultant for a while. And I found even that I was a little bit more on the inside and I really enjoyed it. Worked with some great companies like Vascular Solutions and AGA Medical, but you're still a little on the outside when you're a consultant, even if you're their consultant. So I ended up joining AGA Medical, which was a company I had helped take public. And they asked me to come on full-time to lead investor relations and business development pretty soon after their IPO. Wow. So that's how I ended up in MedTech. So you joined AGA in 2009. According yeah. to your LinkedIn profile, you left Bank of America in 2008. This was not a great time to be leaving a job. <laughs> what was it that convinced you like, no, I'll be okay. I'll figure it out. Because taking that leap into nothing can be terrifying. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you asked. I, In some ways, it was a terrible time. In some ways, to leave investment banking, it was a great time. Yeah, in good fact, point. <laughs> when I left in June, I had June of 2008, I had no idea that in September of 2008, the entire wow. world was going to collapse from an investment banking perspective. When you think about all the investment banks during that time, that, that wow. so I actually, I had people who would call me and 
and say, how did you know? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, for the record, I did not. Just listened really and just realized it was a good time for a lot of reasons just for me to go. Again, great. I wanted to leave also when I was, I still loved it. And I was concerned that I, if I stayed much longer, I wouldn't. So you were you went into business development and investor relations at AGA Medical and then would go on to vice president of corporate strategy at St. Jude Medical over those two years. Were you not inside enough? Even investor relations, I imagine you're inside, but you're still not, your hands aren't dirty. You're not like operating a business. You're not selling devices. It's it's still a little bit on the periphery. Yeah. Although, you know, one of the things I do love about investor relations is I think you have to learn very quickly about the entire company because you have to you're the spokesperson to the street around um, explaining the story. So, but for me, so I was there, yeah, I was probably about a year full-time when we were acquired by St. Jude Medical, right? So that was my first time being acquired. And- um, How did it feel? You know, it's really different (laughs) than being an advisor. (laughs) But that's part of why I actually had wanted to leave, right? I, I Banking, I wanted to get that experience and understanding and seeing and being a part of an employee base when you're acquired is a completely different experience than when you are advising on the transaction, obviously. And for me, when that all happened, it was a good opportunity to learn some new things, right? I was all of a sudden part of the internal diligence team on the sell side into St. Jude Medical. And then I stayed on with the integration process. And so you get to learn and more and you meet all the St. Jude Medical leaders. And they asked me to stay with the company after the acquisition closed. And, you know, I was there actually seven years. And as part of that, just, I mean, had so many great opportunities there to lead many different functions. So you mentioned corporate strategy, and that I think was my very first title there and my last title there. So my first title there, and I was doing special projects, but pretty quickly after getting there, I actually, they asked me to lead investor relations and corporate communications, which Again, I remember saying to them, I'm a finance person by background. (laughs) And they were like, we know that's great. We really want to try to just make sure we're talking to all of our stakeholders the same way. We want to make sure that our communications team understands the business side and that our investor relations team is communicating the way we need them to so that they're all aligned. So I ended up taking that on. And then let's see, then I went into, they actually expanded my role then to corporate relations that included government affairs, philanthropy. (laughs) And then after that, I ended up expanding my role again into marketing communication. So that now you're really into the organization, understanding products, marketing, and then from there formally expanded to strategy, business development and integration. So through that seven-ish year time period, I had the opportunity to really expand my just you know, inside operational experience that you just would never see as an investment banker. Looking back to your time as an investment banker, where you were charged with understanding a company and a business and, and advising them and actually being in that business and looking under the hood and, and pulling out spark plugs and doing whatever else people do when they're under hoods. How did it compare? Do you look back at your investment banking side and say, geez, I didn't really understand as much as I thought I did? Or, or did you think your time back then was, was pretty solid? You know, I think they're really different experiences. So I think when you are in investment banking, what you really can offer that you can't always do or can't really do inside a company is the breadth of what you know. So you have much better, you just have much better knowledge about what's happening all over the market. When you're inside a company, you can get a little more myopic for good reasons, but you're really looking 
at everything at a much more granular level. So in, in my experience, I do think that having both has been a really great experience for me because I can see from, from both sides. But there are times where I'll talk to an investment banker now and they'll point something out to me that probably my, you know, I look back and I say, oh, my old self will be so disappointed. I missed that. But it's because you just have a very different, you know, everyday experience and responsibilities. That's true. Like different perspectives. Uh, yeah. Obviously come with different viewpoints. So let's talk about your, your role at Zimmer Biomet. You joined Zimmer Biomet April 2018. You're now Senior Vice President, Chief Strategy Officer. Was that the role that you came in in 2018? Yeah. So after I, so I, I left St. Jude Medical after it was acquired by Abbott, right? So that was second time I was I was acquired. And I only say that because I, I tell people all the time I've been acquired twice. <laughs> but I, I did. I, I Another opportunity to your point where I didn't necessarily leave for a job, I left Abbott after the acquisition and kind of said, oh, okay. I, I want to take a little time off just to think about what I wanted to do next. I, again, those are good opportunities, I think, to rethink what you want to do. And then I met Brian Hansen, and he had just become the CEO of Zimmer Biomet then. And this would have been early 2018. He talked to me about being part of a large global transformation. And I, one of the things that I loved about my prior experiences is that they were ever-changing, ever-evolving. And that is the type of environment I like to be in. And they did not have a strategy and business development separate function at Zimmer Biomet. So he said he wanted me to kind of come in and create that, which I accepted. So I've been here, yes, Zimmer Biomet for about five and a half years now. And it's been an incredible journey where we've made a lot of progress over the last five years. It's been a lot so of fun. How do you define the, the function of your, your role there? What do you do? Yeah, great question, because I, I find that strategy means a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> So in my role today, I've got responsibility for a couple of years. So I've got a couple of areas. I've got corporate strategy, business development, and integration. So if I break those down, corporate strategy starts with, I'll call it setting our corporate goals, right? We're working with the businesses, regions, and functions to make sure that their strategies connect to what our corporate goals and our enterprise goals are. So strategy is kind of the how we're going to achieve those goals. And we run this through an annual strategic planning process, set annual you know, operating mechanisms and dashboards so that you can track progress. People often think of, forget that part of strategy is actually the deployment of that strategy mm. so that you can execute that strategy. So you have to create it, but then you have to have mechanisms and dashboards and things that you can do to track your progress. Otherwise it ends up being you know, a slide deck that sits on someone's shelf, which is definitely not the kind of strategy I would wanna be a part of. So. Mm -hmm. And this team also, so corporate strategy also does market research and peer benchmarking and things like that. But so that's first function. Then we've got business development, which at Zimmer Biomet is the function that works, is embedded inside of the businesses to understand their strategies and then how those external investments, so acquisitions, strategic partnerships can help them, I say, accel accelerate their strategy, right? So that team is identifying potential targets, developing business cases so that we can prioritize across all the different targets or the opportunities. And then that same function will then execute transactions. So, but this one is from the inside. So you're running the diligence processes, you're negotiating with the other party, structuring transactions, getting approvals, and then actually closing a deal. So that's my business development and corporate development arm. And then I have the integration. So integration is for acquisitions. We actually have an integration management office that works with the businesses, of course, and business development teams. They build the integration plan. 
And then they oversee the actual process until the acquisition is fully transitioned into the business. So that's what falls under my direct purview. Wow. Okay. That's certainly a lot. Take a quick break from this conversation with Rachel Ellingson to bring back this episode's sponsor and sponsor of the Ortho Innovations Talks podcast series, Acuity MD. Again, I am speaking with Mike Monavukas. Well, how about on the startup side? I mean, you're talking about companies that, you know, maybe they have a device that doesn't quite, it's innovative by nature. They're startups, they're coming up with new devices, new approaches. How are you able to work with companies that are bringing new products to market that may not fit a, a previous mold? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Really strong use case around high growth companies looking to establish their commercial traction. And I think one of the big challenges, you know, with an innovative medical technology is, is distribution. You go mm-hmm. talk to, you know, you go talk to startups, they're all looking for distribution. Not only that, you know, how do we make sure that our limited sales resources stay focused and efficient um, as they launch a product? Uh, and so, you know, one example I point to is Embody. Uh, the commercial team in Embody adopted Acuity MD on the eve of the launch of their product tapestry. Hmm. And, you know, so we were ingrained into their initial launch plans from territory design and initial target lists as they rolled out uh, their commercial team, um, you know, back when they first launched. And Acuity MD helped their reps, uh, helped reps, some of which were brand new to the product. And in some cases, even the call point. Uh, ramp up to eight weeks faster and, and achieve their quota in that first year of, of the commercial launch. And well, the rest is history uh, for Embody. Interesting. When When's the earliest that you tend to get involved with, with a startup? Are they uh, all calling you the night before they're going out, out to market or are you, uh, does the QDMD become involved much much earlier in the, in the process? Yeah, I think there are two discrete junctures where startups and high growth med tech companies uh, you know, pursue a QDMD. The first is when they're evaluating a new market. Now, this could be to, in preparation for an investor pitch and they want to identify what's the market size, how is it segmented, what is achievable based on what we know about the market so that they can go and pitch that to investors or strategics. That's one juncture point where, you know, folks come to a QDMD for that insight initially. The second is as they're starting to plan commercially of where do we want to place territories? How big are these territories? How many reps can we justify uh, for phase one, phase two, phase three launch? Uh, that's another uh, key use case to adopt a QDMD to help with that territory level planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are kind of the two juncture points, market sizing and then you know commercial launch. Final question. Let's talk about uh, QDMDs, high growth. You know, we, I think I started talking to you I want to say two or three years ago when you were just starting the company and you're you're firing on all cylinders now, what's uh, what's the future look like for QDMD? Yeah, we're going to continue to execute on our on our mission, which is to accelerate adoption of medical technology. You know, I mentioned we're at about 150 medical device companies now, including five of the of the top ten. We've got a suite of uh, product innovations that we're excited for, and in, in, as we head into 2024, that'll expand our reach beyond you know the med device rep into marketing, into national accounts, into sales leadership, into sales ops. So really focused on broadening our platform and some of the use cases we can support to a much wider audience uh, at the med med device uh, you know at the med device company, and you know looking forward to our second. Uh, customer conference, uh, the Flywheel event in in Minneapolis, which will be in September of 2024 as well. All right. Well, Mike Monavukas, thanks for joining us on the podcast. 
Of course, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that concludes my conversation with Mike Monavukas of AcuityMD. Thanks, AcuityMD, again for stepping up and supporting this new Ortho Innovations Talks podcast. If you'd like more information about AcuityMD, you can visit them at our uh, Device Talks events. They're always there and they're always great contributors, but you can go right now to acuitymd.com. So you've had a couple of busy years at, at ZB, a lot of changes. We'll talk about the ZimV spin out in a moment. I know you were heavily involved in that, but how would you present Zimmer Biomed's overall growth strategy now? What is the objective over the next, give me a time frame, four to five years? Where is Zimmer Biomed headed? Sure. So, you know, our growth strategy is really all about that we want to increase the amount of revenue we generate in higher growth markets because that's what makes it easier to sustainably increase our revenue growth. So if you have looked historically at Zimmer Biomet versus our peers, we have not been growing at our peers. We would be at the bottom end of our peer set from a, okay. previously from a growth perspective. So we, one of the first things we did when we came in to Zimmer Biomet and created our new corporate strategy, a big part of that is, you know, how are we going to grow? So I usually talk about three components of our growth strategy, and they're all around how we're going to get more revenue in faster growth markets. So the first place we look is how do you generate more revenue in faster growth submarkets inside of our largest business, which is large joints. So second is, uh, I can go through each of them. The second one is we generate more revenue in higher growth markets and submarkets inside of what we call our SET reporting segment. And the third is actually divesting non-core businesses. So if I go back to the one around large joints, you know, I would start with the fact that we have the vast majority of our revenue today in knee and hips, right? It's very attractive markets and markets themselves have grown historically, globally, somewhere around 3%. So we know we need to grow faster than that to, again, drive that above market growth, which we need to drive. So how do you do that? So we look for those faster growth knee and hip submarkets. So think things like cementless knees, robotic assisted surgery, those areas inside that grow faster than that overall market. So that's kind of step one. Then that step two, we actually have a pretty big category. Again, we refer to it publicly as SET, but it's basically we've got things like sports medicine, upper extremities, lower extremities. We have a CMFT business, which is craniomaxillofacial as well as thoracic under one leader. I know I mentioned that when we were talking. So you've got all of these different different categories, and those are all higher growth markets. So the idea is we need to invest more in those businesses because the more revenue you have in higher growth areas, the more we can sustainably increase our revenue growth. So that's kind of number two. You would have seen examples in that with earlier this year, we announced the acquisition of Embody in our sports med business. So sports med already grows, let's call it mid single digit. But then we looked at Embody, which is in the rotator cuff augmentation submarket, and that's growing double digit. So again, a lot of the resource allocation decisions we make are around investing in those higher growth attractive markets. Well, in the hip and knee, we'll focus on the knee. I mean, you've had your knee implant with the canary sensor, you've moved into really heavy technology there. Is that an opportunity? Is, is the introduction of those technologies into the into things like hip and knee, which are stable markets, is that what really infuses growth in those areas when you bring in that new technology? Yes. So that is another perfect example of, 
of a place where we said, okay, we need to, again, increase the overall revenue growth and what are multiple opportunities to do that? We always like to think about how, you know, so robotics was one I mentioned, but I mm-hmm. want to put Persona IQ absolutely right in there. Uh, smart, the whole concept of smart implants, you know, that again is a market development, so it will take time, but our view has been that that's going to be a material growth driver. Interesting. And on the the SET side of things, does the future of Zimmer Biomet look differently? Does that become, and you didn't, I don't think you gave me a sense of what was the larger, how much each part comprised of your business, but is SET going to be a larger part of your business going forward? Is that where a lot of the new investment is going to go or, or yes. do you kind of see 50-50? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, when you start here, it's going to, over time, it takes time to really move yeah. portfolio mix shift quite a bit, but certainly, and, and we've already seen that more and more of our investments are going into those categories. For instance, you know, I mentioned the recent sportsman acquisition. We've yep. done two acquisitions in that thoracic space that I mentioned as well, right? Thoracic is a mid-single digit growth market and has some really interesting submarkets that are growing well, like rib fixation and sternal closure. So again, we're really focused on, I think most of our near adjacencies will be in that, what I call set reporting category. And so sports med, lower extremities, thoracic, upper extremities, those are all areas that would be high on our list of priorities for investment. We had talked earlier, and you referenced that earlier, that I was, I was surprised that thoracic was a part of Zimmer Bio. I guess I always thought of you as, as an ortho company. So where does a business like Thoracic fit into Zimmer Biomed? And again, is this an area where you're going to be moving further outside of, of orthopedics or is this sort of just the, I'll say it's an outlier. You can tell me I'm wrong in calling it that, but is this going to be a, a single example of, of a non-orthopedic entity like that? Because everything else you mentioned. Sure. I think it's an example of where when you make investments in some of these areas, it starts to really impact your growth rate. So we have materially, we don't disclose thoracic you know, outside, but I would say we've materially increased size of that business, albeit small, but it makes a difference, right? So, and thoracic really, you know, I like to think about markets where you can get into where you have synergies. The thoracic, the reasons we're buying that got into that was in part because of the connections around metal and plastic implants. You're just mm. fixing, you know, chest wall restoration as opposed to some of the other things we do. So even though it's a different call point, there are some some interesting synergies. It was before my time, but when they made the decision to go into it, but it's uh, it's one that makes a ton of sense to me. And again, that's another, I just think I like highlighting it because I think it's a good example of our growth strategy in action, right? Identifying markets that are higher growth where we don't have as much revenue today, but with some investment and some focus, we can really grow them and have them more materially increase our overall growth rate. Interesting. So let's talk about ZimV. This is a, an enterprise that spun out. These are businesses that it was decided that they could perform better out on their own. Talk about the, the process of looking inward, looking internally, identifying what stays and, and what is spun out and given the opportunity to, to grow on its own. What is that process like of internal evaluation? Yeah, well, I, I'd start with a reminder that it's, you know, it is part of our growth strategy. So it's all to me, it's all connected. Okay. And I, and I say that because so often people ask me mostly internally, but sometimes externally as well, how can reducing our revenue actually help our growth strategy, right? <laughs> it seems very counterintuitive to people. And so I, I get that question and I usually explain you can grow through addition, right? Innovation acquisition. That's the way most people think about it, but you can also do that through subtraction, right? Mm. And so you think through, when you think about subtraction, you want to look at exiting 
lower growth, non-core businesses, right? Because when you do that, by definition, your concentration of revenue in higher growth markets and businesses is increased, right? So, and I do think our spinoff of Spine and Dental was a good way. I mean, these were, so you asked about our internal process. You know, these are good businesses, but they're in lower growth markets and we're, you know, they're impacting our overall growth. And the reality is capital is finite, right? I mean, everyone has to kind of compete for capital. So when you, you have to make decisions to fund different businesses at different levels. And so some businesses, and I would put spine and dental into this category, could, they hadn't yet, but they could actually become less valuable because they be, they're lower priorities in terms of resource allocation decisions. So over time, they are likely better off with another owner. They, and I can say inside of Zimmer Biomet, Spine and Dental really struggled to get, I think, the attention and resources that they needed to thrive. So to me, that that's part of how you evaluate, you know, are you the right owner? Are these businesses better under your watch or not under your watch? And here there's so many examples of when it came to making resource allocation decisions, they would be toward the bottom of that list. And so harder for them to execute on their growth strategies, you know, with the spin, they now have their own dedicated senior leadership team, and they have control over their own destiny in terms of resource allocation. And so you identify those those properties as as being those that will be part of the spin. Talk a bit about the process of spinning out the execution. What goes into that? I'm sure no two spin outs are the same, but uh, what what are some of the primary components of of spinning out two sizable businesses from an even larger business? Yeah, you know, it's funny, I will be very transparent in saying that when we decided to do this, I was like, I've done divestitures, this will be (laughs) fine, you know, of course I can do this. And and I definitely underappreciated the aspect of a spin versus a divestiture in that when you are spinning off a company, you are creating an entirely new public company, like an Mm. entity. So you're, I I say you're pitcher and catcher. (laughs) Whereas in a divestiture, you are are just the pitcher. Someone else is figuring out the design of how to catch it. So that was probably one of the biggest eye-opening parts of the spin for me. And probably I think ups the difficulty level in executing them. So we had to, for us, we had to take Fine and dental business that were not integrated, of course, inside of ZB because they were separate businesses. So we had to bring those together and then add on corporate infrastructure. So you had to hire a CEO and a CFO and his leadership team, and then actually build out the corporate infrastructure that they would need to be an independent public company. So that that was probably one of the biggest differences and, and the biggest learnings for me. And then in terms of how we ran it, so we announced we we obviously worked many months leading up to it. And then we announced it in February of 21 and we closed in March of 22. So, so it's a pretty big lift to completely not only integrate internally and disintegrate or or divest into something else. Interesting. Uh, We had probably at some point over 500 people in the company working on it. I mean, it, it was a very, very large initiative. I had a dedicated separation management office, unlike my integration management office, (laughs) and with different leaders all over the company really working on it. And, you know, I I think in terms of the process, the other thing I'd say lesson learned, because some people do ask me that question is prioritization. So I think one of the reasons it was so successful for us, and was because 
we were all very much aligned that we needed that to be a top priority for team members because it is a very heavy lift. And once the process was done, what was the impact on on Zimmer Biomed? Did it feel as if you now were sort of free to run now that you were not only through that process, but you had the properties, the businesses that you wanted to commit your resources to? It must be kind of liberating. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, for us too, it was that we've been talking about our need to transform our portfolio. Again, we're going back to that growth strategy. We were a below peer grower, right? So we, we definitely were, had a growth gap that we needed to fix. The nice thing about being able to do the spinoff, in addition to all, all of the things that, that you referenced in part, it was our first major portfolio move too. And we were able to do that at a time when capital was really scarce. So we were in 2019 thinking about, okay, we're going to start doing deals, all these things. And then all of a sudden COVID hits. <laughs> and and that really changed a lot. But what that spinoff allowed us to do was really to continue the momentum of our portfolio transformation in a way that didn't require capital. So the timing of it worked out quite well as well. All right. And final question. Looking ahead now, you've identified the businesses you're going to be investing in, the high growth areas. What does the, the next few years look like in terms of portfolio management and M&A? Do you see a lot more happening internally in terms of R&D, or do you see more acquisitions happening outside companies like, like Embody? Are we, should we anticipate seeing more, more deals like that? I'm going to say both, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. when, I, when I go to transforming our portfolio, we, we have to do that, right? That is how we are going to achieve the goals we need to do as a company for all the reasons I've already talked about. And active portfolio management is a big part of that. So we talked about the spin, but you know, certainly if you listen to our most recent earnings call, we talk a lot about increased innovation. That's something we have been doing very consistently. We didn't talk about that a lot here, but very consistently over the last several years. And I know we mentioned in that earnings call, we're on track to launch over 40 new products over the next 36 months. And to me, again, when I think about resource allocation, 80% of that pipeline are in markets growing at least 4%. So same is true. So very, very focused on innovation that will continue. So internal investment still remains extremely important to our organization, but so does M&A. And I think you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at them through similar return metrics, through similar reasons to do things, but, but we need to do both. And I think now we are in a place where we can do both from a balance sheet perspective. I think we've been, again, more balance sheet constrained as we were paying down debt over the last several years and just getting our balance sheet into a good place post COVID, but we are there now. So I think you will continue to see lots of innovation. You will continue to see, I think, continued smaller acquisitions like the Embody or the A&E Medical, some other deals. Strategic partnerships are another source of capital, like you mentioned, one we have with Canary. And um, also we've got an ability now to do larger deals that make strategic and financial sense with the flexibility that we now have. So I think what you're going to see for us is more portfolio transformation. Wow. All right. I like that little that little tease at the end. We'll see what happens there with, with larger deals. <laughs> and I know I'm making something probably out of nothing, but it's a great way to end a podcast. Rachel Ellingson, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Well, that wraps up our first episode of the Ortho Innovations Talks podcast. Thanks again to QDMD for supporting this episode of the Ortho Innovations Talks podcast. And thanks, of course, 
to our Ortho Innovation Talks podcast partner, Zimra Biomet. It's going to be great fun telling their stories over the next couple of months. We'll have many of their senior leaders, including CEO Ivan Tornos. He'll be joining us uh, in episode number three. So uh, eager to talk to Ivan Tornos again. We had him on the Device Talks Weekly podcast a while back when he was COO, but have not had the opportunity to talk to him since he is uh, taking the CEO role. So excited to learn more about the direction that he sees for Zimmer Biomet. And thanks again to AcuityMD for sharing its story. We'd love to have you share this story of the Ortho Innovation Talks podcast. Please do post it on social media. Uh, tag Zimmer Biomet, tag myself, tag AcuityMD. Let us know that you're out there and posting. It'd be great to uh, hear what you're saying and to be part of those conversations. You can connect with me directly on LinkedIn. My name is Tom Salemi. I am Editorial Director at Device Talks. And of course, subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network so you don't miss a future episode of Ortho Innovation Talks. That's it, folks. Thanks for joining us on this debut episode. Can't wait to bring you more stories from one of my most exciting seconds. Take care, everybody.